Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. So, what does an award winning entrepreneur, a TEDx speaker, a baconitarian, which is a vegetarian who still eats bacon, which I'm not too sure is actually a vegetarian, a funky sock lover, a former rapper who opened for the Wu-Tang Clan, yes, actually opened for the Wu-Tang Clan, and a previously 332-pound man who has since lost over 130 pounds despite his affinity for bacon have in common. Well, they're all the same guy, and that same guy is Jason Goldberg, or JG for short. He is a king of playful sales, success, and self-leadership entrepreneur. He's a geek turned entrepreneur, international speaker, Edu-trained creator of the Transformational Playful Prosperity Program, and the author of the number one international best-selling book, Self-Leadership, Prison Break, Vanquish the Victim, Own Your Obstacles, and Lead Your Life. So Jason manages to combine his signature blend of personal growth, comedy, and even rap music with his transformational coaching, teaching, and training. And uh, today we are going to dive into a few things. So one of one of Jason Jason's specialties really revolves around uh, playing the victim. And moving from this place, you know, his book is called Prison Break. And so the the whole concept there is that, you know, all of us live in the prison of our own minds in some way, shape, or form. Whether we feel imprisoned by our limiting beliefs or we feel imprisoned by, uh, you know, shame from the past or whatever that is. We all have this prison that we live in that we feel disempowered by, that we feel like we can't seem to move through and get the results that we want either in our relationship or in our career or whatever avenue we feel stunted by. And so oftentimes that shows up by us playing the victim because we feel like we're in a prison. And so the whole narrative around Jason's book and and around a lot of what we're going to talk about today is how to actually break free from that prison. And maybe this doesn't land with you. Maybe this is just something that you identify your partner or your business partner or one of your colleagues to have gone through, but to better understand them uh, in a deeper way, to be able to better understand their victim mentality, better understand how that shows up for them, whoever that might be in your life. Uh, this podcast episode is going to take a deep dive into that victimhood. And Jason shares some pretty unique stories from his own life that really encapsulate some of that journey, some of the challenges that he's faced, and really allow him to unpack what it means to be in that space of victimhood, what it means to be imprisoned by that, and what it means to actually move through and how to actually do that. So he provides some really great methods in order to actually move through them and uh, and some really hilarious and funny stories. Uh, I like to I like to think that he's got a lot of energy, very high energy. Uh, and so this is not the podcast episode you're probably going to want to listen to at two times speed. This is going to be the single time speed because he will do the fast talking for you. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Jason Goldberg. What is up, dude? How are you? I am great, and I am excited to have have you on here. It's funny, like I was saying to you before, I feel like I've known you for a while, and I've known your content, and I've known what you're up to in the world, but we've never actually connected, and we seem to have similar circles. So this is just an absolute pleasure and a treat to have you on the show. It's likewise for me. We've been connected for so long. It's cool to actually connect. And I'm going to tell the audience something they may not know is that your middle name is will not be. 
So people may not know that about you, but your full name is Connor will not be beaten. So don't try. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. I don't think anybody's ever just like come straight out the gates with with the joke or the middle name joke. I like that. Connor will not be beaten. I'm going to have to use that in a talk one day. It's all yours, dude. It's all yours. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, Jason, I got to I got to dive straight in with the question that I ask all of our guests, which is tell us, tell me and the listeners a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, it's it's such a good question. There's so many like defining moments and and there, you know, there's there's I don't think there's ever one that we have, but the one that that comes to mind that kind of really got me started on this this reinvention in my life as I know it uh, was when I was in my late 20s. So I'm 38 now. I was in my late 20s, 29 years old. And uh, I guess it's about as late in your 20s as you can get. And uh, and I was doing really, really well in my corporate job. I had been in IT for about 15 years by this point. The last seven of those years, I was the director of engineering and operations for a technology firm that's based in Orlando, Florida, and uh, doing really, really well, making well over six figures, You know, nice car, nice home, you know, the wife, like all, all the stuff that, that we all want uh, or say that we want or think will make us happy. And outside of the external success, uh, the other things that were kind of present in my life at that time were tons of weight. And the weight that I had at that time was both physical weight. I was 332 pounds, which is like you know, tremendously overweight. I'm six feet, six foot one, but still 332 pounds, morbidly obese, uh, 40 plus percent body fat, which is like a baby. Uh, and, and, and that's, that was going on. So a lot of health issues there. And then I was also holding on to these other forms of weight, this emotional weight, mental weight, uh, intellectual weight, financial weight, even so stress, anxiety, depression, um, even some suicidal thoughts that would pop in my head from time to time. And, and we can dive into that more if, if that would serve, but dealing with all that stuff and just the feeling of not enoughness, the feeling of, of always feeling like I'm an imposter, like I'm going to be found out, like I need to constantly put on a mask to be accepted by people, uh, uh, you know, crying in my closet in the morning when things didn't fit me because I was so overweight and just feeling so restricted in my body, just having all these things happen. And there was one day when I was at, work when I was at my corporate job and it was, it was a Wednesday and it was donut day. I would bring in donuts for our staff meetings on Wednesdays. And after our staff meeting, I went back to my office and I was on Amazon and I was you know shopping for socks. I, I'm a big, if you know anything about me or people that know anything about me will know I'm huge on socks. So I was like shopping like for, for fun, funky socks and my credit card got declined. It was like a $70, $80 order of socks and my credit card got declined. And so I was a super angry person at this point in my life and really my entire life leading up to this point as a teenager all the way into my adult years, always very, very angry. I was the kid that punched holes in walls and, and would chase people in traffic if they cut me off. And I was a total wuss. So I wouldn't do anything if I caught them in traffic. I would just like speed away because now I'm afraid that something's going to happen. But I, I got really, really angry that my car was declined. And uh, when I tried to make this purchase, and so I, I storm out into the lobby of my office building and I call my bank and I'm, you know, mashing the zero button to get a live person because I'm just so, I'm like boiling over that something's not going my way. This is the way I always reacted to things is like, who can I blame? And I finally get on the phone with one of the, the phone support people from the, the telephone banking system. And, and I, I, I am so close to screaming at them because I'm so upset that my, my time and my emotions are being hijacked. And I asked why my card's being declined. And they said, we declined your card because there was some potentially fraudulent activity. And so to protect your assets, to protect your account, we deactivated the card pending further investigation. And where 
most people would probably be thankful that the bank was watching out for them and and cutting off the card to make sure that nobody bought anything crazy. Uh, I got even more upset and more pissed off. Like, okay, now somebody has stolen my identity. Like they've hacked my account. Like what's going on? And so I demand to know what the charges were on my account that it had you know flagged as being fraudulent. And what the guy on the phone told me was there had been four fast food transactions in one day in Orlando where I lived. And they assumed that somebody had stolen my credit card, were testing it by making small purchases at fast food restaurants before then going to, you know, Best Buy or something to go buy a TV to make a bigger purchase. And the transformational part of that story is, of course, that it wasn't that my card had been stolen. It's that I was making such terrible choices with my health and in my life and in the way that I was showing up day to day to my life that I had eaten at four fast food restaurants in one day and, mm. and didn't think it was that big of a deal, but it was. And it, and it took a billion dollar bank to cut me off and say, you are out of control and we are going to remove access to your money until you start making better decisions with your life. And that for me was a huge wake up call, not the first, I'd had wake up calls my entire life being overweight, but for some reason in that moment, I couldn't find someone else to blame. And I had to start looking within and saying, what am I doing with my life? Why do I feel this way all the time? And is there some opportunity to feel differently? And, uh, and that was what started me on this entire path of, of personal growth, of personal reinvention and of, of becoming the human being that, that I am, but that I still continue to work on being moment by moment, day by day. I love it, man. I love it. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's one of those stories where I think it resonates for, for everybody, you know, regardless of the journey that people have gone on, regardless of whether or not the, the listener's story is about weight or whether it's about family or whether it's about finances or whatever it is is that we can, we can all relate on some level to the fact of really being so outwardly angry at the world in some way and and really playing the victim in some way and that seems to be one of the core messages that I've seen you talk about and it's something that I think is so important something that I really want to dive into because for a lot of people playing the victim is like this shadow role that they don't often see but it's it's the role that's running their life and then they wonder why they can't change. They wonder why they're not getting the results that they want. It's other people's faults. And, and even, even when they are taking ownership over some things, they're still not privy to the parts that they are playing the victim that are, that are actually holding them back. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, in terms of your personal journey, uh, how you actually started to move through that because it's, it's easy to get stuck in that for decades. It's easy to get stuck in that for a lifetime. And for some people, that's that's the battle that they're actually fighting that, that causes them so much of the mental health issues and the depression and, and some of those thoughts that lead them down that path towards even darker thoughts. So can you unpack some of that journey for us of, of moving through that victim mentality and, and why people get so stuck in that trap? Yeah, absolutely, man. It's, it's such, man, it's, it's, you know, it's like the simplest shift in the world. And yet it's also like the most difficult, uh, because it's, you know, I, I always say, uh, transformation is instant and lifelong, right? So you can, you can, mm. you know, you can see the insight in, in a split second, but it is a moment by moment choice to then practice that going forward. So, you know, when I, when I wrote prison break and, and that's the entire premise of the book is at any given moment, you can show up as a prisoner of circumstance or a real self leader, right? It's like radical personal responsibility, but from a place of, of creativity and a place of, 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 of love and a place of playfulness and a place of levity, not from a place of shame, blame and obligations. I shouldn't be such a prisoner. I, I need to take 
take control of my life. I need to overcome these feelings of being a prisoner. Like everything for me always felt very kind of heavy and serious. And so I, I wanted to lighten that up a little bit. But I think where this comes from, at least where it came from for me, was that I just didn't have great role models for, you know, what I now call self-leadership. I didn't have language for it back then. I wasn't, you know, a 20-something saying, I wish I had more self-leadership and I was less of a prisoner. It wasn't in my awareness. It wasn't in my vocabulary. But but I did know that I felt like shit all the time, right? I mean, it's, you know, mm. for the most part, you know, I had moments where I didn't, but for the most part, I always had this 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 weight, right? And, and that's really the common thread with anybody listening here. You may not have ever had any problems with physical weight, but I guarantee every single person and listening to this has felt overweight at some point in their life, whether it's emotional weight or it's relationship weight or it's financial weight and it's worry about money or it's worry about love or it's worry about enoughness. That feels like actual weight that we're carrying around in the world, whether it's physical pounds or kilos or stones or not. And so I think it's a great thing for everybody to ask ourselves as we're listening, where am I overweight in my life? Like, where am I holding on to weight that doesn't serve me? And that awareness is key. So, so getting back to the question about how did this work for me and unpacking that, the awareness part is everything, right? Like we don't, we don't do things to the extent of our ability. We do them to the extent of our willingness. And, in, and until I have willingness to change, I'm not going to change. And until I have awareness that there's something that I can change or that is changeable or that there is implications that my life will be marginally or exponentially better by making this change, until I have that awareness, there's no impetus for me to even need willingness to make that change, right? So like kind of unpacking going all the way backwards, it always comes back to awareness. And so for me, the awareness that I had was a gift from somebody else. My, my now, uh, well, I guess soon to be ex-spouse, uh, was somebody who had been through a lot of stuff in her life and a lot of challenges and a lot of things that, you know, would really take a, a tremendous toll on people. And, and it took its own toll on her in her own way. But she didn't show up in a way where she was always being such a prisoner and, and acting out and lashing out and blaming other people. And for me, I'm the type, you know, coming from a technology background, I love to reverse engineer. I love to figure out, like, find the clues of, of people that have come before me and stand on the shoulders of giants and do all these things that we know of about not reinventing the wheel. And so for me, luckily, one thing I've always had is curiosity. I looked at her and said, well, what does she know that I don't know? And one of the things she said to me was like, it, she had really not done a whole lot of like personal growth stuff. She wasn't like into self-help books so much, at least not as an adult. And she just said like, listen, I, you know, we were driving one day and somebody cut me off in traffic and I got super angry. And she said, why do you do that? Like when somebody cuts you off in traffic or does whatever, why do you react that way? Why do you get so upset? Why do you get so angry? And, and I said to her, what, what do you mean? Like, I, I don't even understand the question. And then I, and then I leaned on my, my six word, what I call my six word death sentence. That's just the way I am. And that's something like I hid behind so much my entire life. That's just the way I am. That's my rationalization for making stupid decisions or making not healthy decisions in my life and my, in my health and in my relationships, all those things. And her response to me was very gentle, very loving and, and no ultimatum uh, whatsoever said, I will not be with a man who thinks he has no control over his emotions. And it was just so weird because the way it was phrased in that moment, if she had said it an hour earlier, an hour later, or a week earlier, a week later, or if somebody else had said it, I don't know if it was just the perfect storm. But in that moment, when she said that, I said, wait a second, what, what do you mean control, control my emotions like that? It, it, it still seemed foreign, but like my head kind of cocked sideways like a dog. 
And I was like, that's interesting. I want to dig more into that. So that's when I started really looking at personal growth. And, and the very first personal growth book I read was They Can Grow Rich, which upset me to no end. Because if you don't understand that you have any control over your thinking or of your experience of the world, then it's just a big tease where he's just saying the entire time, by now you've probably seen the secret that I'm telling you. I'm like, screw you. I don't, what secret? What do you just tell me the thing? But now in retrospect, I get it like, oh, wow, I really do have a lot of control over my experience of the world by being more aware of my thinking. So super long answer to your very short question is that it really starts with awareness and willingness, which is something I had to develop over time. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and it's so true, right? Like I think a lot of people get stuck in that victim mentality and, or, or they can't even see it, right? They don't know what they should be seeing. All that they know is that they're unhappy with their circumstances. And even, even in that sentence, they're unhappy with their circumstances. It sort of, it sort of alludes that there's, that they're, the, the doing this to change it is actually just only in their court. So anyway, uh, it, what what caused you to sort of move forward and, and create this shift? Because you were working and had sort of a, a very, not different life, but you had a very different sort of uh, background and you've swung the pendulum into this entrepreneur field and you're now teaching and talking and, you know, doing a, a, a very sort of different style of work. And so I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, what led you from the space of being sort of unaware to doing the Think and Grow Rich, reading that book, and then now to where you are today with speaking on stages around the world and teaching programs and writing books. And like, I know that that's a big question to sort of unpack and a big timeline to sort of unpack. But if you can just walk us through sort of the, the beginning steps of what you learned that catapulted you towards where you are today, I think that might be helpful for our listeners. Yeah, for sure, man. I think it's a great question. And I, and I think it, I, yeah, I think it can be fairly concise was one of the things that was always true for me was, and, and this is something that again, you know, the, the beautiful thing about being able to connect the dots looking back, but not looking forward is that one thing that was always present for me growing up was that I did love to perform. I loved making people laugh. I loved bringing people joy. And it started off that when I was young and, and since I had been overweight my entire life, you know, I was 250 pounds when I was 15, which is when kids are really loving and accepting and, and would never ever judge you based on your appearance. Uh, so I, you know, I, I had always had this, you know, this weight, this weight problem. And in order to feel loved and accepted, I had to find ways that I thought would make me valuable as a human being. I didn't know this consciously at, at 15 years old, of course, or, or younger even, but I knew like, I don't feel like, I, I feel like I'm not super worthy or I feel like I need to do something so that I don't feel like a complete piece of shit. And what I realized was I was really good at entertaining people and I got in trouble for it. I was class clown and all that stuff and people laughed and I got love and approval. And then when it came to women, women didn't really see me as like a sexual object when I was a teenager and, and the time that we really want to be seen that way. And so I developed empathy because then it gave me some reason to talk to them and they would come to me with their problems. So, so the reason I say that is because the clues for the way my life and my business and my career and then my business would, would map out kind of all map back to those two things that I developed initially as kind of a, you know, a security blanket or, or some way to feel valuable. Uh, and now are kind of the core components of, of what I do in the world. So in between that, what I realized was those things still were present in every job that I was successful in. So when I was in IT, I never really fit in 
uh, traditional, I'm doing air quotes, like you can see me, traditional IT environments, because as we know, you know, the stereotype of IT people is low emotional intelligence, not great with people, uh, not super charismatic. I think that's a, a terrible generality, but, but it, it does exist, right? It, like in any industry, it does exist. And, and people that are in IT tend to be very analytical and extremely smart, and they've directed their energy and attention to those facets of their personality. And so some of the other uh, areas may be, you know, slightly underdeveloped. I kind of had, luckily enough, because of the stress I had as a kid, I had developed both sides, very analytical, uh, very technology minded, and also because I had to, uh, very, uh, uh, you know, humorous, light, and, uh, and, and, and empathetic. Even when I was super depressed, I would still be the joyful, fun, playful guy because, again, that got me the validation and approval that I wanted even as an adult. So I realized in IT, that made me really successful. It's the reason I was able to become the, you know, the youngest uh, director in the, in the history of the company I was working with because I was always the person that would come in and really dig deep and create relationships internally and externally. I loved bringing people joy. I loved going to a sales call with one of the engineers and being the person that could close the sale, not because I had some kind of tactic or some kind of strategy, but because I was really able to connect with the human being that was in the room with me. And so I did that for so many years, but I had always had this belief that I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I had, I had proof of that, right? Like since I was 13 years old, well, actually even younger, when I was like 11, 12 years old, my mom would buy me packs of baseball cards. I would go through the pack and compare each card into the Beckett manual, which anybody who was a card collector back in the day, I don't even know if it's still around. There was a magazine that came out every month that told you the value of every single baseball, basketball, and football card out there. I would take the ones that were most valuable. I got a briefcase from a garage sale for $3. I would put the most uh, valuable cards into this briefcase and go around and sell them to kids and, and you know other kids my age. And, and I would have my mom buy me bags of candy from the bulk store and I would sell each piece of candy for 25 cents a piece on the bus like I was a drug dealer, like passing little pieces of candy over the seat and having them pass back quarters. So like I always loved the idea of having an enterprise built by myself. So there were a series of things that happened that led me to leaving my last corporate job and starting my first company. But I had two startups that had nothing to do with personal growth or coaching uh, for about two years. The first one, when I left my corporate job, I started a, uh, an executive transportation company that was really awesome. We had uh, the former CEO of Priceline on our advisory board and, and raised some money and did some great things. Not a great time in the economy. We did our best to be engaged and, and to really show up and show value, but it didn't work out. Uh, second company I started while I was in grad school, and that company's still up and running. I'm not a part of the day-to-day, -day, uh, but started and, and founded a company uh, called Juntora Group that was all about technology commercialization. So we actually have three uh, licensed to three patents exclusively from the space shuttle program. So again, kind of merging kind of technology, but always being the face, always being the performer, always being the one creating relationships. So that was kind of the, the career trajectory in entrepreneurship. But what was happening throughout, especially through the entrepreneurship journey, was that I was continuing to do this work on myself. And I, and I, I was really diving into, you know, amazing books and amazing wisdom. And I was being coached by my coach who really just, you know, fundamentally shifted so much of how I see the world now and has become the basis for, for how I really live my life. And so in doing all that, I said, well, hold on a second. Starting this transportation company was cool. I love the building part. I love the relationship part. Wasn't super passionate about the product. Get to the technology commercialization. How cool is it to work with NASA? Love the building part again. Love the marketing part. Love the storytelling and, and the investor part. All that great. Not super passionate about the product. And I realized I was super passionate about my own growth and asked myself, how can I continue to get paid to continue to learn and develop myself? 
And so what happened was I kind of fell into coaching. I didn't necessarily want to be a coach. I, I heard like this virtual, uh, like a summit, like a telesummit kind of thing with a bunch of coaches talking about coaching. And I thought it was really interesting. And so I started diving into it and then became a coach and started coaching about five years ago. And that has evolved over time as I've paid attention to where I can most uniquely serve, what's my genius zone, what's my service zone, and how I can bring who I am as a person, my story, my experience, my wisdom, and my gifts into serving other people. And so now, you know, if you look at my my business plan and my business strategy, my business plan is to leave everybody I meet with 5% more joy than I found them. And my business strategy is to really give a crap about the people that I do work with. And uh, and so those two things have become the guiding principle. And that's how I made that shift from the corporate world into specifically what I do today. Awesome, man. I really, really saw it. I, I think one of the things that I really appreciated about your journey is that coaching while it sort of is the not end result, but it's the result that you it has led you to there. It's not something that you were like, oh, I want to be this like, you know, world famous coach and da, 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 da. It just is sort of where the trajectory of your life took you. And you're able to summarize and look back in a really in a really clear way that not many people can do and sort of say, here are the pieces that led me to this space. Here's why I'm fulfilled by it. Here are the components that that really, you know, fulfill me and reward me. And here are the tools that I learned along the way from other people, from my life, from, you know, books and resources. And I think that's so uh, important because in, in a world where, you know, everybody wants to be a coach to help other people. I think a lot of people are trying to serve other people because they don't know how to serve themselves. And they're hoping that somewhere along the journey, they can learn how to actually solve their own problems by solving the problems of other people. And, and while that is important, while we, you know, while, while, while there are a lot of people out there that, that should be of service, it can be a very slippery slope where people can start coaching too soon and then they struggle to get clients and then they you know they struggle to get their message out there and it, it can be this this sort of uh cart before the horse and or carriage before the horse and and so i really love your journey because it was almost like this un unintentional trajectory and all of a sudden you're like you know what i feel like i have these resources i feel like i've done these things i feel like i've learned enough about myself that i can actually step into this space now and and, th and that's pretty incredible and so I just wanted to say that before I circle back around this to this victim piece, because I'm curious, you know, after doing a lot of this work in, in companies and corporate environments, one-on-one -on -one work, group work with people, have you seen a difference between how the victim actually shows up or how, how people imprison themselves, just to use your language? Uh, is there a difference between men and women? Because I'm, I'm, I sometimes see sort of how the victim shows up differently for the masculine and the feminine. And I'm curious if you have seen uh, differences or similarities between the masculine and the feminine. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for that acknowledgement, man. I, I really appreciate that. And, and it's, it's, it's well received. And, uh, and I really do think anybody who wants to serve people in the capacity of being a coach, it's so important to, to do that work on yourself first. You don't have to have everything figured out. Believe me, I will not for a moment ever say that I have it all figured out. And, and I always tell people that I wrote prison break for me, uh, that it's mm -hmm. not an instruction manual. It's a destruction manual, uh, to help me continue to break down the blocks and the things that come up for me. There are, there are, 
there are two chapters in particular, but really one chapter in particular in the book that I go back to on a pretty regular basis because it continues to be my work, right? So like it's, it's, if it ever comes to a time where like I really feel like I have this self leader thing nailed and I never have prisoner moments, number one, I will check and see just how high of a dose of medicine I, I'm on. Uh, number two, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I haven't become a sociopath. And number three, I'll move on to a new message because I really think these messages are moment by moment. I never want anybody to read my book or hear this interview or hear me do a live talk or anything and think that you get to a point where you're just a self-leader all the time. That's not yes. the way it works in my world. It is a moment by moment thing. I have plenty of prisoner moments. And the only difference now is that A, I have an awareness that I am showing up as a prisoner and I'm making that choice. And number two is that I have the window has shortened from the time that I notice that I'm in a prisoner mode and I decide to operate as a self-leader instead. And so the, the, the more often I can close that window, I can shorten that gap of that window from the time I, I react as a prisoner to the time I can then re from a relaxed, creative place, uh, be purposeful and be a self-leader in that moment and take full personal responsibility. To me, that's massive success. Uh, so, so I want everybody listening to be very gentle on themselves and not say, Oh God, I've been a prisoner so long. I'm so stupid. What the F is wrong with me? Why have I not figured this out? Like, no, that's, that's the inception of prisonerness because that's being a prisoner about your prisonerness. Mm -hmm. Like gentle on yourself and know that you have always done the best you could. If you knew better, you would do better. And maybe listening to this is giving you a, a slight little crack for the light to come in where you say, you know what? I'm not sure about the self-leader thing, but I'll give it a try. JFT just for today and see what happens. So I, I just want to share that. I'm sorry for going off on a tangent, but no, it's, it's, it's good, man. It's good. It's really good. Cause I think that, you know, what's like, a lot of the times people reach out and ask questions like what's the difference between, you know, a Tony Robbins and somebody that's never, that's, that's never made it as coach or, or Robin Sharma or whoever. And I think what you just described there and unpacked is that the, the people who make it to that level, it's not that they're flawless. It's not that they don't struggle. It's not that they don't fall into these victim mentalities or into their own prisons and that they're self leaders a hundred percent of the time. It's simply that they are living their message as consistently as possible and and that they that they are bringing that leadership out into the world in its imperfections with you know with the full knowledge that they don't need to be perfect in order to lead they don't need to be perfect in order to teach uh and that and that everybody has some flaws sometimes yeah I totally agree with you, thousand percent. So, so thank you for letting me say that. And and then to answer your other question, I think that's a really interesting thing. So, so funny enough, like I was raised by a single mother, and I'm an only child, and my mother was a beautician, right? So, like I was raised in a salon environment. So, feminine energy is actually my default. So, it's interesting. I, I show up much more in feminine energy in my personal life, and much more masculine energy in my business, as far as the operation of the business. Uh, but of course, tapping into to the feminine energy when I'm coaching or when I'm teaching as, as needed. But it's just interesting how that works. So I think because of the feminine energy that's such an easy access for me, women typically are the ones who are attracted to work with me. So I have primarily women that work with me, you know, like in, I, I have a signature online program called Playful Prosperity. And out of like the 90 people who just went through it this past time, I think we literally had maybe like six guys and, and the rest were, were all women. And, that, and that's totally cool with me. I love it. What I, what I've noticed uh, in my own life and, and also in the people I've worked with is that sometimes the difference of how the prisoner mode shows up is that for women, it tends to be more fear and guilt based. And for men, it tends to be more anger based. And, and I think at least for me, my anger, and I think this is a lot for men in general, and I, and I love your take on this as well, of course, that I feel like for men, we are taught that fear is not okay, but anger is. And, and anger is a much more acceptable version of fear. It's just fear. 
it's just an accept more acceptable version of it. I can still feel masculine if I'm angry, whereas I can't feel as masculine if I'm afraid. At least that's the message that we, we've been given. And so for me, that's how it showed up for me is that I was really afraid. I, I had all these feelings of not enoughness growing up. That's why I punched a hole in the wall because I wanted to feel some kind of control over my self-worth and my value. And since I didn't feel like I had control over that and I was afraid I'd never have it, the, the way that I expressed that was anger instead of saying to somebody, I'm really afraid that I will never feel like I'm enough. It was hand through a drywall, right? And that was just easier than actually dealing with the shit. So for me, it, for women, it's more, uh, I'm afraid that I, I'm not going to be a good enough mother or a good enough wife or a good enough partner or a good enough entrepreneur or whatever, or I'm never going to figure this out, or I'm not cut out for this. And who am I to have this anyways? And it's kind of more of that. And with the men, it's like much more, it's still beating themselves up, but it's much more anger. And it's also, I think a lot of times more outwardly uh, focused on somebody else who's doing them wrong. And that's why things are not working out for them. That's been my experience at least. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's true in, in many, in many ways. And I think the, you know, another challenge that a lot of guys face is, is when shame enters into the picture, right? And that, that shame is often the thing that's keeping them in the victim state that's actually imprisoning them. And the anger that you're talking about, whether it's internal and they self deprecate and they beat the shit out of themselves, you know, emotionally and mentally internally, or it's that outward, outward aggression where, you know, it's really directed at other people that that's, that's a manifestation of the shame that they feel in a lot of ways for not being able to break free of that cage of that prison that they're feeling like they're living in internally. And so, yeah, it's interesting to hear that, to hear that difference come up. And, and, and I think it's so true that, that sometimes it is experienced differently. Do you feel like some of the narratives and some of the messages that, that men and women uh, receive growing up plays into that? I know one of your chapters and I just like, first off, I absolutely fucking love the chapter titles that you have in your book <laughs> i like i when i was going through i was just like pissing myself laughing um at at some of them like i mean i'm just gonna i'm just gonna take a second to read a couple of them off because i really okay. like this this isn't even a plug it's just like i just love your creativity so uh what do you what do you got here so quieting the baby assassin which is one sure. of them i wanted to talk about Stop being so cautious. Uh, you've you. Uh, what was the other one? Creative codependence. Um, I got a good chuckle out of which train of thought will you board? So like, I don't know. I just I got I got a good. Oh yeah, deep shame thrombosis. I was yeah. like, okay, yeah, I I got you. I got you. Oh yeah, the the turtle and the life preserver. Yeah. About roller coasters. I was like, what in the hell? So so tell me tell me about. Um, and maybe the, maybe you don't have this like right off the top of your head, but you know, quieting the baby assassin. I kind of you know this reminded me of sort of like our childhood wounds and the things that hurt us as kids are often the things that assassinate us later on in life. They're actually the things that are holding us back in life. At least that's how I semi interpreted it. Um, I'm sure that there's a whole different take on it from your end, but I wanted to sort of get your take on that. Like, how do our how do our childhoods actually? Uh, build these sort of cages or, or what roles do they play in building our, 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 you know, internal prisons that we believe that we live in. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm so glad you like that stuff. My, my, the chapter I referenced earlier, that's my favorite chapter that I go back to over and over again is your intuition is drunk. That's the yeah. one that's, <laughs> that's my favorite. I, I reread on a regular basis. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a, it's a lot of what you said for me, the baby assassin is essentially my way to uh, de depersonalize the things that I'm feeling. And so I like to think that when I have this internal and people call it, you know, internal chatter or whatever they call it, you know, the, the self negative self-talk, 
that stuff's all good and feels very sterile to me. And I like to make things fun as much as possible. I like to gamify life as much as possible. That's why, you know, that's why that whole program is playful prosperity. It's not necessarily about like shooting Nerf guns and throwing water balloons. It's about looking at the challenge in front of you and saying, how can I play with this? Like if I were going to get really creative about this, if I can really lean into which one of, one of my core mantras now, which is creativity is greater than circumstance. If I really live into that at any given moment, then I can call upon my resourcefulness and my innate creativity to solve things, to make them no longer problematic instead of always dealing with all these problems in my life. And so that's where the whole baby assassin came from is that in my mind, I like to pretend there's like a little, like a little cot or like a little bunk bed. And there's literally like a little teeny baby that's dressed up in a little ninja gi. And he's just laying there, like just hanging out, sucking his thumb, doing whatever. And then as soon as somebody says something to us that quote triggers us, or as soon as we go to try to do something we've never done before and we doubt whether we can do it, it's like a disco light and like a blaring siren go off inside of our head. And the baby assassin wakes up and says, it's my time. They're, they need me. I'm in the game. And the baby assassin just starts judo chopping and drop kicking and doing all this crazy shit from the inside of our head. And it makes us feel like it's real, right? We think it's us talking to us, but it's the baby assassin talking to us saying, see, I told you, you suck. You're never going to be good enough. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And when I can pretend that that literally is a little baby and I can see myself taking my thumb and my index finger, like I'm, like I'm pinching something and I reach inside my head and I grab the little baby assassin by the back of his little ninja gi and I pull him out and I put him down in front of me and I see that he's like this little three inch tall, adorable little creature who doesn't know any better, who is never trained to know what's right and what's, what's, what's true and what's not, who has never read Prison Break, who has no access to personal growth, who literally is strictly biased based on the conditions and the experience and the judgments of others and things they've experienced in the past. When I can see how innocent this little thing is in front of me, I don't have to fight it. I would never fight a three inch tall human being. If it was <laughs> screaming and yelling, I would probably try to soothe it, right? The same way a parent would never yell at a baby when it's crying, at least not a parent who's had some amount of sleep and, and has some amount of empathy. They, they would never yell at the child to try to solve the problem. They would never even rationalize with a baby that's crying to try and solve the problem. They would just soothe the baby. They would hold the baby. They would give the baby love. They wouldn't make the baby wrong. They definitely wouldn't make it about themselves. The baby's crying because I'm a shitty parent. Like babies cry. Baby assassins talk shit to you. It's just what they do. And when I argue with that, I'm stressed and I'm anxious and I'm depressed. And when I acknowledge that and accept it for the gift that it is and just work to soothe the baby assassin, I in turn get soothed and these things become no longer problematic. They can exist. The baby can continue telling me what a piece of shit I am as it's you know being lulled to sleep. And it just doesn't have the same effect on me as it did before, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And, you know, I think that that concept is funny because, you know, so many people disassociate themselves from their past versions. And so I love this sort of play out and this visualization of being able to bring that into the space. So uh, really, really cool, man. I, I really, I really appreciate that. Um, you also had a, a great quote in the book that I wanted to bring up. It's by Winston Churchill. And he said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as, as if nothing has ever happened. And and I love this because I, I feel like it, it is very accurate in a lot of ways. And so I was curious as to, you know, what truth do you feel some people stumble over and, and just tend to carry on even though they've seen it? 
Yeah. And you know what, dude, forget people. Like I'll just, I'll own mine. Like this, again, this doesn't end. Like it, it constantly happens. And the one that I, the one that's really my work and, and the one that, that, and it does show up a lot for clients. Don't get me wrong, but, but I want to really like, I don't, I don't want this to be a bunch of diagnosing and instructing. Like I want to confess here as well. And, and so my confession here is that the one that I definitely continue to stumble over and then pretend uh, that, that nothing ever happened to pick myself up and pretend nothing's ever happened is this belief that like, it can't just be easy, right? Like that, that it has to be hard. And this goes back to, I think, conditioning of the corporate world that it was this badge of honor to work 60 or 70 hours a week. And it was this badge of honor to be the one who got less sleep than the other person. And it was this badge of honor to work as much as you could to make sure your billables were super, super high so that you would get a certain kind of bonus, even if it meant sacrificing your relationship to yourself, to your partner, to your health, to whatever. And so for me, I think the truth that keeps being pointed back to me is the fact that when I loosen my grip on the things that I'm working on, then it gets easier. And, and that has become one of the core messages. This kind of became more of a core message after I'd already finished uh, Prison Break. But there are elements of this in Prison Break as well, but became kind of the next whole big iteration for my message was living a not so serious life. It's when I started to realize that I didn't have to be serious, but that instead I could be sincere right? I could be sincere about my work. I could be sincere about my health. I could be sincere about how I create relationships and nurture them. I could be sincere about how I you know, grow my business or, or grow myself without having to be overly serious. So for me, that's one of those truths that I think people stumble over and then pretend that, that nothing ever happened is, is that they really want to hold on to. And I always really wanted to hold on to, and I've gotten a lot better about it, but it definitely still creeps in, is understanding that we, we actually don't have to have such a tight grip on everything. We don't have to have, we don't have to try to have such control over everything. We don't have to take things so seriously. We don't need to make everything in our lives so significant. And, and the more I practice that, the more I, I loosen my grip and I literally like, I will, I'll hold a pen. Like sometimes when I'm getting really stressed, I will hold a pen in my hand and, and hold it as tight as I can, like to where my, my fingers and my knuckles are turning white and then just practice letting, loosening my grip and letting the pen just sit in my hand. The pen doesn't fall on the ground. I'm not turning my back on my work. I'm not being lackadaisical. I'm not being a, a slack ass. I'm not laying on the couch eating bonbons and hoping that money will show up. The pen is still in my hand. I still have focus on the thing in front of me. But when I no longer have such a tight grip, I recapture all this lost energy that was being, you know, jettisoned down my arm and into my fingers. And I can be creative about what it is that I want to create without all the stress and seriousness. Nice. I like it. I like it. And, and I like that analogy and, and just being able to like physically bring that into your experience, because I think sometimes we need that sort of somatic processing in order to really understand how something's working, not only in our mind or in our emotional body, but in our physical body. So I appreciate that. And, and I kind of want to take this conversation into the space of, of self-leadership, because I feel like we've sort of been talking about it, uh, you know, on the, on the fringe in, in a lot of ways. And, and I would just love to address it directly and, and maybe have you unpack, you know, what is your version of, of self-leadership? What are some of the steps that people, you know, need to understand that, that might help them get along the path closer to self-leadership and what sometimes stands in the way? I know that's sort of three different parts, but maybe if you can define it and, and then start off by just saying, uh, you know, these are sort of the three things or, or five things, or these are the the traditional things that I see that stand in a lot of people's way towards self-leadership. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, self-leadership at its core is a, a moment by moment choice to show up from a place of clear, calm, courageous, 
creativity as opposed to uh, being at the whim of the economy or who's in the White House or the song on the radio that reminds you of your ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend. It's, it's the difference between uh, wishing and hoping and praying for a safe life that doesn't toss you around at all uh, versus saying, I was built for anything that could come my way and let's see what this puppy can handle. Like, it's like, you know, if you, if you put, uh, you know, $20,000 into souping up a car to make it the most high performance vehicle in the world, you don't spend all that time and money and energy building that car and then say, okay, I think I'm going to go drive this 20 miles an hour on a residential street. Like you would never do that. You, you, you want, you want to test the components. You want to see what this thing is made of. You want to, you want to test it with all of its might. Like you really want to see what it's capable of. And self-leadership is about saying, no matter what comes my way, I can show up and I can milk life for every opportunity that's in front of me. That even if it doesn't feel like an opportunity in this moment, the more creative I can be, the more relaxed I can be, the more light I can be, uh, the more enthusiastic I can be to see the gift in this situation, even if I don't know what the gift is, but to be willing to see that there is a gift, the, the more purposeful and intentional I can be about creating an experience of life that actually works for me. And so the, the difference there is really like, the distinction I make there is, are you going to be a nuclear reactor or are you going to be a first responder? And if you look at a nuclear reactor, this is a very volatile power plant that literally employs sometimes hundreds of people to make sure that every little dial is perfectly in sync with the preferences of the nuclear reactor, because if not, the thing will explode and potentially kill all, all the people around them. If you look at the contrast of that first responders, people who are EMTs and police and fire that come to the scene of an accident or show up at a natural disaster, and you have never seen people that are more intentional and purposeful and clear and calm and courage, courageous and creative about what needs to be done. They survey the situation. They don't have an emotional attachment to what happens. They look at the facts of the situation and say, given the conditions of the game, because I believe that we're playing the game of life, given the conditions of the game that I am experiencing in this moment, what would it be ideal? What would I love to create? How can I bring my innate gift of creativity and relaxation and calmness and love to this situation to have a higher likelihood of creating the experience of life that I want. I like it. I love it, man. And it sounds like, you know, some of the pieces that we've already been bringing into this, you know, really allow for that space to happen, you know? So what are, what are some of the pieces that, that people really need to know or embody or, or start to embrace on a day-to-day -day basis? And I know you just sort of laid some of them out there, but what are some of the pieces that, that people need to embrace or embody on a day-to-day -day basis in order to start to have this sort of self-leadership? And are there components that, that they can start with today? Or, or what have you found on your journey to be the most helpful for yourself? Yeah, for sure. So I, I think the easiest way to start doing this is, and I'm not, I'm not huge on like models that have multiple steps because I don't want people to have to uh, laminate cards and like keep them in their purse or their wallet anytime they don't want to feel like crap in life. I want to make it as easy as possible. So I'll, I'll try to do that with, with this is that, uh, you know, it's, it's, the easiest way I can put it is that I, I created this thing called the ARC model, the ARC. And, and these are the three ways that I uh, would initially be moving through to go from prisoner to self-leader in any given moment. And the great thing is, is that the more you practice it, the less you need a model to go back to, which is, which is always my, my goal is to not have something people have to be relying upon or codependent with in order to feel a certain way. And so 
the way the ARC model looks is the A is for awareness, right? Which we've talked about, you know, at length is really being aware in this moment. Listen to your body, right? When your body starts feeling tense and your body starts feeling like, uh, like there's some tightness. For me, it shows up in my shoulders. My shoulders will get tense and they'll kind of raise up to my ears. And I know that that means something's off. Be aware that anything that's going on in your world that's making you feel, uh, that you think is making you feel heavy or sad or unsure or overwhelmed, start looking at those things, be aware of those things and start seeing them as the little gas gauge on your car, right? The gas gauge on your car is part of a very intelligent system that lets you know when you are low on something that is vital to the proper operation of the piece of machinery. The gas light does not flash when you're out of gas and you're in the middle of the highway and stuck. It starts flashing when you have 30 or 40 miles worth of gasoline left in your car. So notice that when you are in a, in a place of awareness, things will happen. You'll get triggered. Things will not work to the, your preferences. Uh, things will not work out the way you want them to or that you think are best. And start to see, oh, there's that light on the dashboard letting me know something is off. I don't need to know what's off. It's not about the content of my thinking. It's just about the fact that I'm thinking something in this moment that is causing me to feel the way I'm feeling. And, and that awareness piece, even by itself, is so huge because sometimes – when you have the awareness alone and you go, oh, I'm doing that thing again, I call this having a Britney Spears moment where a thought pops in your head, you take it seriously, and then you realize that you have that awareness and you go, oops, I did it again. Like something popped in my head and I took it way too seriously and that's why I'm feeling this way. So, so the awareness piece, like really seeing that anytime that little light on the dashboard goes off in your head, that it's the intelligent system saying, hey, just so you know, very gently, you're not in any real danger, but in this moment, it feels like something may be off a little bit. What are you being called to step into in this moment, right? What's missing right now that you need? Do you need to be a little more courageous? Do you need to be a little more slowed down? Do you need to be a little more relaxed? What do you need in this moment? Because that's what the flashing light is doing. The next part is the R. And the R stands for responsibility, right? Your ability to respond. So now that you have this awareness and you've started kind of asking yourself this question about what is it that I'm being called to step into right now, it's understanding that the next thing that you do, that you, you have the ability in this moment to choose what your response is going to be, to notice that you maybe had a default response and to ask yourself, is that default response going to serve me based on how I want to feel? Because that's all this stuff is. It's like, ask yourself how you want to feel. I want to feel happy. Awesome. Does, does indulging in this line of thinking lead me to being happy? No. Cool. What would? So that's noticing in the R that I have a choice. I have the ability here to respond in the way that I want to respond. And then we move to the C, which I actually just said the word, uh, is choice, right? So now given that we have the awareness, given that we've started asking ourselves these questions, given that we know that we have full control and full volition over what we do next, that can either set us up to have a higher likelihood of success or diminish our likelihood of success, what do we choose to do in this moment for this moment? Not now and forever, not all or nothing, not the perfect solution, what would serve us in this moment to feel the way we want to feel and to choose and put that thing into action? Awesome. I love that. I love that. And I, I love the comments about like the laminated cards <laughs> in the, in the, in the wallet. It's, what, what do you mean, Jason? You don't want people to, uh, to, to like, you know, go turn on TV and see your infomercial from the 1980s and then, you know, hear like the, the motto and the mantra that they need to, you know, uh, talk about every single morning and then laminate that and put that in the wallet. <laughs> I really, you know, I actually, I want people to tattoo it on their forearm. I, I'm okay with the tattoo. I'm just not okay with laminate. That, that's my only thing. 
So good, man. So good. Uh, well, cool. I think that, that that process, I think, is really powerful and 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 can walk everybody through that sort of process from from the victim mentality to the self-leadership model. And and I really appreciate you being on the show today. I wanted to talk about one last thing because we're, we're running out of time here. Um, but one of the things that I did want to dive into, because I love this concept that you've brought up, and, and I think it's applicable for everybody, not just not just um, entrepreneurs, but it's this idea of, of stop doing business uh, as usual and start doing business unusual. And you, and you talk about bringing your own flavor, your own message, your own uniqueness into business. And, and I think that people that go to your website, which will be in the show notes and, and check you out and, and check out some of you know your content and your you know your book and and just like your love of socks, love of random <laughs> weird socks, which are some of your socks are amazing by the way. Um, Thank you. you know, they'll they'll start to see what you mean by this idea, but I would love for you to unpack this and why it's actually important. Why is this necessary in in current culture? Yeah, dude, it's just it's so <sighs> So, okay. So one of the guiding principles uh, in my business and in, and in my life and what has now become especially a guide, like I, this, this was something that I leaned on way before I was teaching it just for myself. And now again, thank God for those clues, like just saying yes to things and just taking action. And you never know when it's going to manifest could be, you know, three days, three weeks or three years later that this thing pops up and you go, Oh, that's why I looked into that three years ago. So I'd be ready to do this today. And there's this one quote that's just always been such a guiding principle for me, or not always, over the last, you know, especially the last three years or so of running this business. And it's this quote by Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman says, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And every time I hear that quote, for me, it's always been super powerful. But then I realized like that's really when I feel the most lit up is when I am helping to light up other people. And so I know that one of the vehicles for that is business. And there are a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, especially service-based entrepreneurs, and even more specifically coaches, you know, mentors, teachers, online educators, speakers, people like that, that really have a message to get out in the world. And the problem is, is that the majority of people, and definitely the way I ran my business for at least the first year until I kind of accidentally stumbled upon this. I'm, I'm so lucky that I've stumbled upon a lot of shit that now I can reverse engineer and, and build into like a framework, but I had no idea. It was not purposeful. I'm not smart at all where I saw this ahead of time and said, oh, I'm going to do this and that's going to make me successful. I had no clue. I was fumbling and flailing like everybody else. And, and what I realized in the first year is that I was building a business that was based around a, a Japanese disease. It's a very, very little known Japanese disease. It, it comes from the foothills of Tokyo. Um, I, I know nothing about Japan, so I hope there are foothills in Tokyo. And it is a disease that is called Osodui. And Osodui is something I see a lot of people suffering with. And how you know you're suffering with that is that you go somewhere and you meet somebody and you say, oh, you coach? Oh, so do I. You have a book? Oh, so do I. You have an online course? Oh, so do I. And we're running these oh-so-do-I businesses where it's all based around content and it's all based around offerings and it's all based around services. And we're leaving out the one key thing that differentiates us from anybody else in the market, the one thing that actually creates a competition-proof business. And it's us. It's like who we are. It's our quirks. It's our stories. It's the way we show up. It's the things that we think have no place in our business that actually, if we amp those things up, are what draw people to us human to human. And once people love you human to human and you've increased what I call your HOF, your HOF, your hangout factor, 
then people just naturally want to explore how they can have more of you. And if whatever you're offering from a professional perspective is something they actually need, this is not a manipulation tactic. It's a way to really connect with people. And connection is the currency that the only currency we really have nowadays is that it's been so powerful for me to really figure out what my gifts and my superpowers are and to use those as the base ingredient for any dish I cook, for any program I put out, for any book I write, for any, you know, any coaching I do, for any talk that I, I deliver is really keying into that and making it so that nobody can Jason Goldberg harder than Jason Goldberg and Jason Goldberg. Right. There's no way that anybody can do what I do the way I do it. So, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, I, I talk about mindset or I talk about this. Like for me, I talk about mindset and I talk about entrepreneurship. So do millions of other people. But when I talk about mindset and entrepreneurship, I bring in humor. I bring in rap music. I bring in a love of bacon. I bring in a love of socks. I bring in inappropriate jokes. I bring in, you know, all these things about me that you would think have no place in business, but are actually the one thing that differentiate me from everybody else who's talking about mindset and entrepreneurship. I love it, man. I love it. And I, and I think that that is, you know, the oh, so do I thing is, is something that's so powerful because it's, it's something that, you know, when you start to see how often people actually do it <laughs> and, and you can start to, you can start to shift and, and, and catch yourself doing it and you can start to, you know, fill in something a little bit different, like maybe asking them a question and getting curious about it and, and, uh, and then really starting to bring your own flavor when they do sort of put it back on you and say, you know, what do you do and, and who are you? And you are able to put your own spin to it. It does help you stand out above the crowd, above the noise. And we do live in an age and a time and a culture where there is so much noise. There's so much content being pumped out through every single, single social media channel and everybody, you know, is trying to grab and vie for attention. And it, and it is the biggest challenge. And I, so I think that this, this concept, uh, of doing, you know, business unusual and and really bringing your unique flavor into that is so freaking important. So, listen, man, I I love this. I love this concept. Was there something that, that you wanted to say really quick before before we jump off? Yeah, I, I just want to say really quick, and, and what I hope people see from that is that it actually removes a lot of the pressure for you to be the all knowing, you know, all all powerful expert on a certain subject because you know that just really quickly the the analogy that I use that I th I think brings us home for people and shows them this this belief that I have that I I know to be true for myself is that our success especially in this kind of business and really you could say in any business where there's a face is that it's 90% you and 10% your content and and the metaphor that I use for that is you look at churches I mean I'm I'm in Los Angeles there are churches you know on every other corner and they are all operating from the exact same book so if they're all operating from the exact same content, then why do some people only go to one church and some people only go to another, even if those churches are across the street from each other? Well, it's because the person delivering it is bringing their spirit, their personality, their energy. Maybe you really resonate with somebody who's high energy and really charismatic, and maybe sometimes that's irritating to you. I have had people tell me that I'm irritating because I talk fast and I'm too high energy. Great. You're not my tribe. Maybe you resonate with somebody who's much slower and kind of more stoic. Fantastic. Go follow that message and that messenger. But when we, when we really lean into the fact that our genius zone is what separates us and not our content, for me, it took so much pressure off where I could just create something that would be a value and allow me as a human being to be the thing that really attracted people as opposed to trying to be the, the end all, know all, be all expert. Amazing. Uh, amazing. I love it. And I think that that is a great way to, to sort of put, put a bow on everything that we've talked about. Uh, on a personal front, I have a few rapid fire questions for you. Are you cool with that? I know I didn't tell you about that. 
Let's do it, dude. Let's uh, go back to my rapper days. Let's see if I can freestyle my answer. No, I'm not going to do that, but I'll answer the questions. All right, cool. So, uh, okay. Craziest thing that you feel you've ever done that you can talk about publicly. Oh God. Craziest thing I've ever done that I can talk about publicly. Uh, oh crap. There's so much pressure. Um, I, okay. I, um, I had, do you remember the song? I got the power by snap back in the day. Yep. I got the power. Yeah. So somehow when I was 12 years old, I'm going to make this super quick. When I was 12 years old, my mom's friend met that band at like a 7-Eleven down the street from my house, brought them back to my house. So I knew they were coming and I found that I actually had the CD and I found the lyrics so I could learn all the lyrics to the song so that when they came over, I'd be able to rap it for them. They came over, they hung out in my house. The one guy tried to steal my mom away and take her on tour. That was weird. And then they came into my room and we were all playing video games and the lead singer Turbo is 400 pounds, sat on my bed to play video games bed frame completely snapped underneath him he fell and rolled off onto the floor and it was effing hilarious so that was absolutely crazy <laughs> that's a great story uh favorite favorite place that you've ever visited um ooh, i'm gonna say prague okay prague great place yes. uh fun fact i actually sang there when, back in my opera days when i was singing classical music and got to sing in the prague national theater where Mozart premiered uh, some of his biggest shows, like Don Giovanni. Shut up. Do you sing it all as a part of like your work now? Do, is there any place I can hear you doing opera on your podcast? Uh, I, say, I, I sang like a little bit on the, on like the Christmas special. Uh, but other than that, I, I sang like a few lines in my TED Talk. That was, that was like the whole thing. Dude, that's sick. I love that. Uh, okay. So uh, favorite food? Oh, man. I got to oh, – man, that's so tough. I, I mean, I'll go with pizza. Anything that's a delivery system for cheese, I'm probably into it. <laughs> I love that that's the reason. Not it's, just, it's a delivery system for cheese. You can get cheese straight to my face if I want it. That's it. Uh, okay. Coolest person that you have ever got to have a conversation with. Ooh, coolest person I've ever had a conversation with. And, and, and why? Cause you, I, I know that you've met some really incredible people. So I'm curious as to like who it might be and why. That's such a good question. Um, the first person that pops in my mind is, uh, is a guy named Dr. Bob Youngquist, who is a, a NASA scientist. And he was our main point of contact in that, that company I started with NASA. And, and the reason I, I thought of him first is because he is a hardcore data driven, you know, literal, like, you know, rocket scientist and had one of the most playful spirits in the world and was so geeked up and so lit up about what he was doing. Even if it was like creating a camera to identify glass fractures in the window of the space shuttle orbiter, you would think that he had like created the cure for AIDS. And he was like so excited to talk about it. So there's just something about people who are doing really complex work and doing work that maybe doesn't seem glamorous and is not really highly rewarded or coveted out in the world. And yet they're so geeked up and so having so much fun doing it that really lights me up. And so he's the guy that, that comes to mind for me. I love it. I love it. Okay, cool. And last question, if you could recommend anybody to be on the Man Talk show, who would you recommend and why? Ooh. Because fun, fun fact, you are on this show because somebody answered the question, Jason Goldberg. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, I think uh, the uh, first person comes to mind, dear friend of mine, just somebody who it just inspires me and, and cracks me up all the time is uh, Sean Stevenson. I don't know if you've had him on the show already. Uh, but, uh, Sean Stevenson, world-class speaker and, uh, just an amazing guy, uh, who just is his entire, his entire mission in the world is to rid the world of insecurities. 
And, uh, and if we cannot get behind a mission like that, I, I don't know what mission we can get behind. So definitely Sean Stevenson. I love it. I love it, man. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for dropping some incredible high energy, high vibe and wisdom bombs onto the audience today. Uh, for everybody else that's out there listening, uh, definitely head on over. You can go to thejasongoldberg.com. The links will be in the bio uh, to check out more about Jason's work. Or you can go to Amazon and check out Prison Bank, Prison Break, not Prison Bank, because that would be weird. That's pretty uh, good. <laughs> Actually, hey, Connor, can, can I say one thing real quick? Yeah. So I wanted to just, I, you know, book sales and Amazon and all that stuff. I don't really give a shit about that. I really want the message to be out in the world. And so I want to give all of your listeners access to get a free copy of Prison Break, uh, the audio version, a digital version, or the paperback version if you're in the U.S. for free. Uh, so I have a link that I'll give you and uh, and your people can go check that out and they can get an absolute free copy of it. Great. Perfect. All right. So you don't even have to go to Amazon. Go to the link that's in the bio. You can download either your digital version or your audio version for free which is amazing. Thank you so much, Jason. That's incredible. Huge value. I really appreciate having you on the show today. And uh, for everybody that's out there listening, thank you so much for joining us on the Man Talk Show. Uh, I will catch you next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. 